Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Abraham was not where he intended to be, but Abraham was where God intended Abraham to be. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from this week's messages. The second altar was where Abraham did something. He called on the name of the Lord. God was stirred up and God was focused and God wanted Moses to be stirred up and to get focused. It was because I wanted you to engage like a transmission with the engine. I'm the engine. You're not engaging. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study from the book of Genesis. Now we love the Bible here. Oh, we love the Bible. And we love the truth from the Bible. And we like to learn because the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. But why does God reveal this truth to us? Because he wants us like Moses to engage. He wants us, our transmissions to engage. So he teaches us truth so that he can put his hand on the gear shifter of our lives and move it into drive and take us where he wants us to go because he wants us to engage. That's why he does. Why does he teach us about heaven and hell? Why? Because he wants us, like he says here, see how sin has imprisoned, has deceived, is killing the lost, and engage by bringing the lost the gospel so they can be set free. Why does he teach us all these things? Because he wants us to hear the cries of the lost, the cries of the lost. What do they want? They want safety, security, to have a good forever. So he's saying to us, engage by bringing to the lost the promises of salvation so they make them safe in the arms of Jesus. And he, he tells us all this in the Bible so that we will know the sorrows of the lost, so that we can engage by bringing to the lost the comfort of being redeemed by the all-powerful blood of the Lord Jesus. So just like Moses, God teaches us so that we will engage. Uh, you know, last week, Russ, he, he went to go visit a 94-year-old Jewish man named Julius. Just had open-heart surgery, and God miraculously kept this 94-year-old man. He, it's a miracle that anybody lives through open-heart surgery, but especially if you're 94. And so he, he brings him the gospel. Now, why did Russ go to Julius because Russ was willing to see the oppressive weight on Julius from being trapped in a Jewish religion of dead works with no hope of heaven. And so, therefore, Russ engaged and he went to Julius. And why did, why did Russ go to Julius? Because Russ was willing to hear the silent cries for help of Julius. Silent cries for help to have God as his friend to have a a, a forever good future. And so Russ engaged, and then he went to Julius. And why did Russ go to Julius? Because Russ was willing to know Julius' sorrow, the sorrow in his heart as he faced a grave and an eternity in hell. You know, the Bible uses, whenever it says in the Old Testament, it talks about the power of the grave, you know. That's not the word power, it's the hand of the grave. That's the way how it's used. Because he, he knew the sorrow as this man could see the hand of the grave reaching out for him to drag him in to an eternity of hell of suffering and without the Lord Jesus Christ. And Russ engaged 
with that knowledge of that sorrow, and he went to Julius. He went to Julius, patiently explains to him that he could be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Russ asked Julius the question, if he wanted to receive the Lord, and Julius said, yes. Why? Because Russ was willing to let God show him the oppression. Let God have him hear the cries. Let God make him know the sorrows of Julius. And so he went. So that's what happened. Because Russ saw what God saw. What does God see? God looks at a person like Julius and sees Julius in his lostness. And Russ heard what God heard. What God hears the cries of a man like Julius, knows the sorrows of a man like Julius. And so he gauges, he goes to Julius, Julius is saved. Now, the more we learn, the more we, the more we learn, the more we want God to help us, to help us to hear so that we can engage and go. Faith of the head is dead. Faith of the heart is better in part. But faith of the hand, that will stand. So we see this so clearly in Paul's life. When Paul first encountered the Lord Jesus, Jehovah Jesus, he was on this road to Damascus, you remember. And it says in Acts 9, 5 through 6, that when he had this encounter, he said, Paul said, and he said, Who, that was a very important word, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what? That's an important word. What wilt thou have me to do? See, Paul had really just two questions which started in, in his life with the Lord, and it continued all the way through his life. And those are the two words, who and what. Who are you? That's the revelation that came to him, that he's Jehovah Jesus. And then what will you have me to do? That's engagement. Those are the two questions that summed up Paul's life. All For all of Paul's life, he wanted to know the who. Who? He wanted to know the who from Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. In other words, that I may know who he is. And the what? What wilt thou have me to do? So when Paul writes the book of Romans, and he comes to chapter 8, which is the Holy Spirit chapter, Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in the book of in chapter 8 of Romans than any other chapter, Paul is getting very, very close to God. He's like the one of the twelve, which we believe was John, who put his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heard the heartbeat of God. Heard the throb of God in Romans 8. And comes out with all these marvelous statements like, who shall separate us from the love of God? And goes through. So Paul in Romans 8, gets his heart in sync with God's heart. He gets his heart in sync with God's heart, which is like with Moses. He sees what God sees, the affliction. He hears what God hears, the cries. He knows what God knows, their sorrows. And the first thing he does is he lifts his head off of the the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ from hearing the heartbeat is that he writes Romans 9, 1 through 3. Well, so he comes off and he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish in myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people. So God's heart beats for a lost Israel. And as much as they tried to kill Paul, 
So many times, he says, he says, I've suffered so many things at the hands of my countrymen. They're always trying to kill him. When Paul got close to God, he had a renewed concern for the Jewish people, a renewed concern for lost Israel. Was he an apostle to the Gentiles? Yes, but an apostle to the Gentiles that was willing to go to hell if the Jewish people could go to heaven. That's engagement. That's engagement. So now, turn back to Genesis 12. That's why the two theirs are so important of verses 7 and 8. So important, because the first one is where God appeared to him, and then he built an altar to memorialize the revelation that he had received from God. And the second, in verse 8, is where he built another altar, but that was Abraham's engagement by becoming a man of prayer and calling on the name of the Lord. Now, we read in in verse 9 now, and 10, it says, And Abraham journeyed, and he was going on still toward the south. That's an important word, still. And there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So what do we see? We see here that Abraham is just, he keeps on moving. He keeps on going. He's going toward the south. You know how it's all lays out. You know, Babylon... What's the capital of Iraq? I forgot what it's called. No, it's Baghdad. <laughs> it's Baghdad. No, Damascus is Syria. Baghdad, okay. Well, just south of Baghdad is Babylon. So this is down, you know, kind of know where that is now, down there. Anyway, so when he goes here, he's traveling. So you see, he's going up. He goes from Babylon. He goes up and around this area to come to Haran. And then he drops down into Canaan. And then he keeps on going down to Egypt. So he makes this big, giant horseshoe, you know. And here we are in verse 9 where it says he keeps on moving toward the south. That's tracing him as he's going down to Egypt. So anyway, we back up a little bit and remember that when he has come into Canaan, we can just imagine Abraham's joy and his relief. You know, I don't know if there was a sign that says, Welcome to Canaan (laughs) or something like that. But anyway, he's in Canaan. And he settles in the plain of Moray, and he's there, and he hears these words from God. And he says, unto thy seed will I give this land, this land. He thought, oh, I finally arrived. It was a long time. It was five years. It took Abraham about five years, because, you know, he had a, he had a stop in Haran and so forth. But it took a long time for him to make that journey. And he finally gets there. And what a day that was when he got into Canaan, the land God promised him. And what a day that was for Abraham when he heard God say, unto thy seed will I give this land. You are now on the land. I told you about it in Ur. I told you about it in Haran. And now you're on it. You are on the land. And God says to him, unto thy seed will I give this land, the land that you're on. And so Abraham settles in the plain there of Moray in Canaan. And he builds this altar which shows us that Abraham intended to stay. Abraham intended to stay there in the land that God had called him to, because he promised it to him. But we saw in verse 6, there was just one little problem. You know, the Canaanite was then in the land. Israel intends to um, have Gaza and the West Bank as part of their land. But there's just one little problem. The Palestinian was then in the land. The Palestinian is now in the land. Anyway, we're not given the details But that probably explains why Abraham makes his next move to the mountain. 
Abraham was most likely chased off that plane by the Canaanite, who didn't see it the way God saw it. So Abraham ends up in the mountain. Yeah, he says, you know, a plane and a mountain, oh, what can you do? At least I'm in Canaan, right? The land God promised me. So first, Abraham intended to settle in the plain of Mori, and then, you know, he had changes his plans, and, and he ends up in the mountain, and then he intended to stay in the mountain. He built an altar there. But when we come to verse 9, we see that Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. So that was not what Abraham intended. He didn't intend that, to leave the mountain, to be on the move again toward the south. But what happened this time? Well, verse 10 tells us, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Famine, famine. What? Not just any famine, but a grievous famine. You know, in that part of the world, there's not a lot of rivers. And so the crops are very dependent on the, the timing and the amount of rain that comes. It has to come at the right time. And I appreciate this, because when we moved on to our 12 acres in Ethiopia, we didn't have a water supply. First thing we did is we brought in city water. <laughs> that was real useful. <laughs> as long as the electricity was running, um, you had city water in the city. Anyways, electricity doesn't run. Electricity would go off for a week at a time. So we were there. We didn't have a water supply. And sometimes there was a good harvest because we planted. We plant carrots and all kinds of things. And sometimes there's a terrible harvest. Sometimes there's no rain. And sometimes, more often than not, there's 70 inches in three months, which is the normal. Well, it all changed when we dug the well. It all changed when we dug the well. Now we always have good crops because we have a consistent supply of water. Well, at that time, famine was driving Abraham south to Egypt. What was Egypt? Egypt is the land of the consistent water supply because they have a big river called the Nile. It starts in Ethiopia, and it overflows and waters the crops of Egypt. And so the famine drove Abraham right through out of the land that God promised him. He drove him out of Canaan. And Abraham finds himself now in Egypt. And Abraham might have become depressed over that. He might have said, Egypt? What am I doing in Egypt? I didn't intend to be in Egypt. I'm supposed to be in Canaan. But this famine has driven me right out of the place I intended to be. So coming into Egypt, Abraham could have become pretty depressed and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, Egypt is not where I intended to be. I should be in Canaan. I shouldn't be here in Egypt. But Abraham was not where he intended to be, but Abraham is where God needed him to be. Why? Because God loves the Egyptians, and the Egyptians desperately needed the knowledge of God. And God wanted to bring the knowledge of God to the Egyptians through Abraham. And after all, God had told Abraham in verse 3 that he would make Abraham so that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And there were families in Egypt. And so Abraham did not know it, but God was about to use Abraham to bring the knowledge of God to the Egyptians. And some of the Egyptians were about to find God as their Savior. Why? Because Abraham was driven by famine into Egypt a place he did not intend to be, but where God needed him to be. And some of those saved Egyptians would going to join Abraham's caravan, and they would continue to learn about God 
like an Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. Why? Because Abraham was driven by famine into Egypt, a place he did not intend to be, but where God needed him to be. And from what Hagar was able to see and learn from Abraham, she will later cry out to God, and God will hear her, and God will give a name for her son, which is one of the most wonderful names that God ever gave for a person. And that name has within it the word Shema, Shema. And that name means God will hear, or Ishama El, or Ishmael. Not a very popular name among Jewish people. You won't find a Jewish person naming a child Ishmael, but it's a wonderful name. It's a wonderful name. And Hagar will give us one of the most wonderful names for God when she will say, God who sees me. Why? Because Abraham was driven by famine into Egypt, a place he did not intend to be, but was where God needed him to be. And today, there's a person in heaven named Hagar with Jehovah Jesus. Why? Because Abraham was driven by famine to a place he did not intend to be, but he was in a place where God needed him to be. And that's the point. Abraham was exactly where God needed him to be. God knew that every place that Abraham went, God was going to use him to bring the knowledge of God to the lost. So in Egypt was not where he intended to be, but it was exactly where God needed him to be to reach the lost. It was not where he intended to be, but it was where God needed him to be. That's why verse 10 is so important for us. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. We look at this, and we say, that is for us. Because so often, we look at ourselves and we say, I am not where I intended to be, but I'm where God needed me to be. I did not intend to be in this city, but God needs me to be in this city. I did not intend to be in this job, but not God needs me in this job. I did not intend to be in this hospital, but God needs me to be in this hospital. I did not intend to have this cancer, but God needs me to have this cancer. Because like Abraham, we are exactly where God intended for us to be. So we can bring, like Abraham did, the knowledge of God to the lost. If we engage. If we engage. So when we, like Abraham, find ourselves where we didn't intend to be in our Egypt... God then wants us to be looking for the seeking Hagars in our lives and bring them the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, so that they can also be in heaven with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for leading Abraham, Lord, so that even though Abraham questioned, might have questioned, and said, to what purpose? Lord, we know that you had a great purpose, and now we see it. And Lord, we find ourselves so often in a place where we say, to what purpose? Help us, Lord, to use the lesson today to be able to say by faith for God's purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Dad, today you talked about how when Paul was on that road to Damascus, that he asked God two questions. And those two questions were, who and what? You talked about how Paul asked God who God was, and he asked God what God wanted him to do. 
I can't get out of my mind those two simple questions that Paul asked God, the who and what questions. How does what Paul asked God apply to our lives? Well, David, those are two essential questions that will remain with us as believers throughout all of our lives. We start our new life, our new birth, with those two first questions. You know, when a baby is born and you hear the cry of the new birth, in essence, that's the cry of the new birth for every believer. Who is God and what does God want us to do? And I can't think of any better way to express that than the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And normally, I don't use the words of a hymn to speak from, but the words of that hymn are so based on Scripture that it's like Scripture, and it's referring to Scripture, and that hymn is pregnant with Scripture. And here are the words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? or thorns compose so rich a crown, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, those words really get to the issue of who God is and what he wants us to do. When I survey the wondrous cross, we hear the words of Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When the hymn says, on which the Prince of Glory died, we hear the words of 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. When we hear when we read, my richest gain I count but loss, we hear the words of Paul speaking from Philippians 3.8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. When we read these words and pour contempt on all my pride, we hear the words of Romans 3.7. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. When, when Isaac Watt writes, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, we hear the words of 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Isaac Watts wrote, All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. We hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 4.19. It's the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering in. Choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. When we see those that hymn, the words see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. We hear the words of, a, of Moses in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul, and we can see the blood flowing from the altar, flowing from the cross, 
as he said, sorrow and love flow mingled down. When he wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. We hear the words of Paul speaking to us in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And, of course, he's referring to everything in Romans 9.10.11, but especially in Romans 11.32 where it says, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. We are concluded by God in unbelief, worthy of hell, worthy of eternal death, but God has wants to have mercy upon us all. And because of that fact that God is so rich in mercy, therefore, We give ourselves to God. And as as Isaac Watt puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Thank you for joining us today. And remember that this message is available at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for free listening and free download. Tom Cantor also wants to encourage you to witness to your lost Jewish friend, coworker, neighbor, or acquaintance, someone you know that's lost and needs the gospel. He'll give you a free gift to do that. You can fill out the online form at friendshipwithgod.org, or you can call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051, or go to our online form at friendshipwithgod.org. We also have Tom Cantor's latest book, Whosoever Will versus Fatalism. If you'd like a copy of this book, call us 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or go to friendshipwithgod.org.